Track down a Bible if you can, or get your device out if you need to, and get with me to Acts chapter 7. Starting a new series now, in the middle of the book of Acts, it'll be a a little mini-series where we look at the church in the book of Acts. Now, you might be wondering, you know, what was the decision-making process here of of, um, doing this series in Acts and in the middle of it? But the truth is, when we look at the book of Acts, what we find is the church having to figure out who they are. They're figuring out kind of issues of identity, and they're having to figure out kind of who they are and how they're going to function. And they're also kind of operating in this world that is challenging in the first century. And so you've got kind of these issues of hostility. You've got different worldviews that are at play there. And so there, there are certain powder keg issues that by even raising the topic, there's going to be hostility surrounding those things. And we experience that today. Obviously, our world is not identical to what they were going through, but there are some parallels here. But they were dealing with hostility, and, and hostility to the degree that people would be killed for their beliefs. Uh, which we'll see here as we look at the story of Stephen. And at the end of uh, the chapter that we're looking at, the very next chapter, he, he's stoned to death. So there's hostility. There are challenges that the church has to figure out with issues of physical meeting space. Um, obviously, we feel that. We're a portable church, and we have everything on wheels so we can kind of go where we need to. But the church had to figure out where will we gather together? And what will that look like? And they rented lecture halls, and they, they borrowed synagogues, and they did different things to try to accommodate the gathering of the people of God. And we're in a season in the life of our church and in our campus specifically where we don't know what that's going to look like. We don't know what this season is going to be like. We're meeting at the tree farm right now. We're borrowing space. We're sharing with wedding parties. We're doing different things. But what does the future hold? And we're going to look at the early church to help us navigate those challenges. And also there were missional adjustments that needed to be made. The church had to figure out who are we and how are we going to engage with this broken world. And the book of Acts really helps us to consider those different things. And so we're grateful that we can do this together and jump into Acts chapter 7 and find things that we need help with. So let's go ahead and pray and we will get to work. Lord, we ask right now for a blessing on our time in your word. We're praying, God, that you would use this sermon to help us. We're asking, God, that it would be a blessing to everyone who's gathered here physically and for those who are gathering online. We're we're trusting, God, that by your spirit you are not limited by any of this and that you can use this in a mighty way to be a blessing for your people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so we're going to find here the accusations against Stephen and what those are. We're going to find his response, which is the speech that he gives. It's 53 different verses, but he gives this speech in the book of Acts. And and then finally, um, we're going to just zoom back out and consider five different lessons that we can take away from this chapter of the book of Acts. So first, the accusations. The accusations, you could find them if you looked at the response that Stephen gives here. But it's easier just to kind of go back and look at the previous chapter because it's there that you find them spelled out. Um, Basically, the religious leaders, they were called the freedmen, a certain group of Jews, looked at Stephen and the followers of the way, and he saw them as problem, they saw them as problematic. 
and they saw their worldview and their belief system as something that, they, that was incompatible with, with their own, and so there was a hostility there. And in Acts chapter 6, we find out the two specific charges that are brought against Stephen, and, and they are these. Stephen does not properly relate to the sacred space that we consider holy. He doesn't love the temple like we love the temple, and that's a problem. And secondly, Stephen and others like him, they do not honor and love their Old Testament like we honor and love our Old Testaments. He doesn't properly relate to Moses and the law. So let's look at it, Acts 6, 13, and 14. They, the religious leaders, produced false witnesses who testified, this fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs Moses handed down to us. So again, they didn't like Stephen's relationship to the temple, and they didn't like his relationship with Moses and the law. So they had a problem with him. Now, Stephen, he's a, he's a leader in the church now. Uh, the apostles had uh, a ministry situation where they decided we have to multiply leaders, and Stephen was one of those leaders. And Stephen then began this um, ministry. Initially, uh, it's a ministry of care. It's a, it's a ministry of ad administering food and resources to those who are disadvantaged. And then he begins to preach. He begins to tell other people about his faith. And that's where he starts bumping into problems, because when he's talking about his faith, he's talking about all these things that the Jewish individuals of his day were looking at questionably, and they're saying, I don't think you understand how important the temple is. I don't think you understand how important the law is, and you seem to be speaking about these things in a derogatory way. You keep, we've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs that Moses handed down to us. So that's the problem that we have, and they bring him before, uh, you know, a group of people, and they falsely accuse him. They bring false witnesses before him, and they have hostility toward him that ends in his execution. So here's the point that I want you to understand. Faithfulness to Christ will result in hostility. Now, I know that sounds funny, because we're in America, and, you know, there's, there's been a tremendous amount of agreement between Christian ideals and societal ideals for a long, long time. In fact, we've been living in an experience for, for a long time that a lot of people call Christendom, meaning that the society has a lot of similarities to the, the biblical worldview. And that's just kind of been the, the nation that we've lived in. And for a long, long time, if you were to ask people, regardless of, you know, whether or not they were practicing their faith or attending church services or, or living out the teachings of Christ, if you were to ask people, the majority would say, we're Christians. We're, we're Christians. That's our heritage. That's who we are. If you want to know who we are spiritually, we're Christians. But now we're moving from that Christendom experience to this post-Christian reality. It's something that Europe uh, has experienced. It's something that many other places have experienced. But I want to say that our nation is going through that trauma right now, that, that adaptation of going from Christendom to post-Christianity. And I need you to know that being faithful to Christ will result in hostility. Being faithful to Christ in the new reality, you, you won't get patted on your back. You won't get celebrated for that. But being faithful to Christ could result in people responding to you in accusatory ways. 
with hostility. Them looking at you and saying, you don't, you don't fit what we think is important. You don't follow the cultural norms that we value. You no longer are, are a part of what we think is valuable in our society, and I want you to be ready for that. Now, I've been teaching this stuff for a long, long time. I've, I've believed that we're moving in that direction, but COVID-19 and the political landscape that we're in right now, I, I, as experts have been saying, everything is being amplified now. Everything is happening faster now. The trends are ramping up. These trends that you could discern early on, now they're just skyrocketing. So we're living now in a society where we have to be willing to say, I'm going to follow Christ and I'm ready to suffer for it. I'm going to follow Christ, and even if that brings me hardship and difficulty, even if there are accusations made against me, I'm going to be ready to stand with him. Now, I hope that you're in agreement with me that we could be the people who say, we're going to be the faithful remnant. All throughout the Bible, there's always a group of people, and sometimes it's a very small minority, but there, there is always a remnant of people who say, I follow the ways of God, even if the rest of the world does not. And I want you to be ready for that. So there's the accusations that are made against Stephen. And you see it in, in chapter 7, verse 1. Then the high priest asked him, are these charges true? Are you ready to be accused for your faith? Well, secondly, we find the response and it is long, and we don't really have time to get into the weeds of it. Um, a lot of the details of how he presents uh, would be confusing to us. We might not even know some of the stories that he references. So we're just going to look at it kind of with broad brushstrokes. We're going to look at some of the general topics that he addresses. And we're going to find that what he does here is he tells the story of the history of the people of God. And he does it in a way that actually he's answering those accusations, but he's doing it in a very compelling way. He's, tell, he's retelling the history of the people of God, and he's, uh, he, he's speaking into those two things that he was accused of, his relationship to the temple and his relationship to the law. So let's look at those uh, topically. The first thing that we see here when he's responding is that God has given his word to people. God has spoken. He's given promises. And, and that promise, as we come to find out by looking at the Bible and reading it, it's the promise of the good news of the gospel. But God began speaking all the way back in the garden. And he's been developing this promise all along. And so now Stephen is saying that promise, that good news of the gospel, it has a relationship to the temple. But there's some surprising features about it. The promise of God in relationship to the holy space, the first thing that you need to know is God doesn't need a special location. He didn't need it at the very beginning. In fact, he highlights Abraham. Look at verse 2. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, God spoke to Abraham. And even prior to that, he spoke to him, and he talks about it here in verse 2. He spoke to our father Abraham while he was still in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran. Why does Stephen bring that up? He's saying, look, God was speaking to people in remote and foreign places. He was able to speak to Abraham before Abraham even lived in Haran and then before the people of God ever got into the promised land. God doesn't need a special parcel of land to be effective, to be powerful. God is on the move. Look at verse 9. He goes on to talk about 
Joseph, another individual from the history of the people of God. You find him in the book of Genesis as well. But Joseph was a young man with uh, 11 brothers, and those brothers had hatred toward him, and so they sell him into slavery. And look at what it says in verse 9. It says, because the patriarchs, the brothers, were jealous of Joseph, they sold him as a slave into Egypt, but God was with him. Joseph has to forcibly be moved into this new location in Egypt, this foreign land, and, and this profane land, and he's there. But, but Stephen makes the point, if you've read Genesis before, God doesn't wait for Joseph to get back. Like, I'm stuck here, I'm, you know, I'm in the promised land. Unfortunately, you have to leave that for a little bit, but I'm going to stay here. Now, what happens? Joseph goes there. In fact, the Bible says God sent him there ahead of his brothers to be a redeemer. And when he gets there, who else is present? God. God is there as well. So Stephen's making the point. That sacred space, that holy temple, remind yourselves, remember, God is not confined to a physical location. He is on the move, and he is everywhere where his people are. I love John Stott and how he puts it in his little commentary. He says, God is a pilgrim God, and he's always ready to go on adventure. God is a pilgrim God, and he's always ready to go on adventure. So God is the kind of God who, wherever it is that we might go, he's there with us, and he's not confined to, to a location. Um, I remember my first uh, missionary trips and feeling like as a, you know, as a Christian, I was bringing God to a new location. What did I find out? He was already there. God didn't need me to be this vessel or carrier of him, bringing him to a new location. God, God is not confined by geography. He's not stuck in a location. He's on the move. And so God is active in the world, and he is not confined to a physical space. Even the temple itself is not really the dwelling place of God. The Bible itself says so. Look at verse 44. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of the covenant law, and they had it with them in the wilderness. It had been made as God directed Moses according to the pattern he had seen. So they had this tent that they would set up. They were a portable church like us. People of God, the Israelites in the desert wilderness, they were given a blueprint for how to build this elaborate tabernacle where they would set it up and inside of there would be all the sacrifices and different things that would happen and the glory of God would fill it. Um, so so we, we can relate with the Israelites because we've got wheels and we've got teams that need to set stuff up and tear stuff down. But look what he says. That tent was made after a pattern that had been revealed to them. The tent as significant as it was. I mean, can you imagine setting up a tent? Last, yesterday, we set up a tent in my yard for the, little, for the kids to play in. We went out there. They were kind of sitting in there just messing around in the yard. But can you imagine to seeing what the Israelites saw where they set up their holy tent and the glory of God fills it? Just smoke and pyrotechnics and all that stuff, and it just fills up. And they looked at that then, and they were amazed by it as the priests weren't even able to go into it because it was filled with the glory of the Lord. Can you imagine that? But it was made after a pattern, which means that wasn't the reality. It was a replica. 
It was made after a pattern. In the book of Hebrews, the author will say as much. He's saying the temple, the tabernacle, it was designed after a blueprint because it's made after the, real, the reality in heaven. And so you have to make it according to the pattern because it's, it's a replica. It's kind of like individuals who buy um, fancy paintings, you know, really expensive paintings. If you spend a ton of money on, on a painting, this is what I understand, I don't have one, but if you spend a bunch of money on a painting, they actually give you a replica. And you take the real one, the rolled up one in its case that's protected, and what do you do with it? You put it in a lockbox. And then you take your replica and you frame it out and you hang it on your wall. And then people might come over and they'd look at your painting on the wall and they'd be inspired by it. This is beautiful, this is awesome. But the owner would know what's hanging on the wall, as impressive as it may be, it's not the real thing. The real thing is under lock and key somewhere else. That's what the tabernacle and the temple are like, according to Hebrews and according to the rest of the scriptures. It's a replica of the reality. It's impressive, it's awesome, it's inspiring, but it is not the real deal. It points to the reality. Look at verses 47 and 50, talking about the physical structure itself. David wanted to build a temple, verse 47, but it was Solomon, his son, who built a house for God. However, now this is quoting from Old Testament stuff, however, the Most High does not live in houses built by human hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. The earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me? God is saying. Or where will my resting place be? Has not my hand made all these things? It's wonderful, David, that you want to build a house. He flips it on his head. He says, I'm going to build you into a house. And your son, he'll make a physical feature. But then he, he's saying something about that physical reality, that temple. He's saying, as impressive as that may be, do you really consider that I'm going to get stuffed into that building? That that's going to be my home? That that's going to be my dwelling place? That that's the only place where I can reside? I made everything. I made everything that you can see. I'm not going to live in a house built by human hands. That's the point that, that Stephen is trying to make here, is that the temple is important. It's valuable. It has, he honors it, but at the same time, he recognizes that even when they were talking about building it, God was reminding them, I will place my name there. I will put my glory there. I, I, I will manifest my presence there. But I don't live there. I live wherever I please. This is all mine. So when we think about the physical space, here's what's important for us today. You might be thinking, I don't really care about Jewish history or all these different things that are going on in the book of Acts, but we need to be people who recognize we face the same kind of struggles. We fall in love with physical places. And we begin to consider that God is more effective in those locations. Now, we're a portable church, so we have a leg up on a lot of other churches because we understand we've had to meet in different locations, lots of different locations. We have to move. We've been around for three years, but we've, we've, we've had church in all kinds of different spaces, including where we're at right now, in a new location at the farm. And so we're, we're kind of, you know, accustomed to that. But a lot of times people will, will look at physical spaces and they'll begin to think, this is really where God operates. I need to go to the church. I need to sit in the sanctuary because that's where God is. And there's something that's partially true about that, but it's also partially wrong. God isn't confined to a physical location. Um, when we think about becoming more 
stable and more permanent, we might consider purchasing a building, but we'll always remind ourselves, God is not confined to a location. He can use it for his glory. He can set his name there. He can manifest his presence there, but he's not stuck there. One of the things that I was thinking about this morning was the fact that many of you are online this morning, and it's, it's not ideal. We understand that. This is a hard time. But your home can become a sacred space. Your home can be a place where God dwells. It might feel like you're not at church, so it's not as real, but at the same time, I want to push back on that and say, wherever you find yourself, God is there and he's available to you. When you go to work this week, when you go to your, your vocation, to your work, and you walk through those doors, one of the temptations we might have is to think, man, this is a profane location. This is a place where God is absent. That's a temptation that a lot of people struggle with. But, but remind yourself, God is there with you. He is not stuck in some building somewhere. He is on the move. He is a pilgrim God, always ready to go on adventure. So the first thing that Stephen responds to is the relationship that he has to the holy space, but then he goes on to talk about the relationship he has to the holy law. He is affirming of all these things. He believes that the temple is important. He believes that the Old Testament is important. He says so much in uh, verse 20, he begins to talk about Moses, and he says this, at that time, Moses was born, and he was no ordinary child. Stephen knows Moses is a key player in the history of the people of God. He had a privileged upbringing. In verses 20 to 23, he outlines that. His identity, Moses himself recognized that, that he was called by God to be a redeemer. Verse 25, Moses thought that his own people would re realize that God was using him to rescue them but they did not. So Moses is no ordinary child. He's a redeemer. And the way that Stephen then looks at Moses and at the law is Moses was an incredible, unique individual in all of history. And God used him to speak to the people. So look at verse 35 and 36. He, Moses, was sent to be their ruler and deliverer by God himself through an angel that appeared to him in the bush. God led them, uh, sorry, verse 36, he, Moses, led them out of Egypt and performed wonders and signs in Egypt at the Red Sea and for 40 years in the wilderness. So Stephen's saying, look, Moses was used by God. God said that he would be their ruler and their deliverer. God gave him, him this incredible assignment. Moses is an incredible individual. Verse 38 he was in the assembly in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with our ancestors, and listen to this, and he received living words to pass on to us. Moses is incredible, and God used him, and God spoke to Moses, giving him these living words, these words of life, the Old Testament. So what, what is Stephen saying? I appreciate Moses. I honor Moses. I value the law. Christians ought to be people who have a, a very high view of the scriptures, provided that they understand what the scriptures are for. I believe that the entire Bible is a gift to us, that the Old Testament is not something, I, I get tired of hearing Christians talk about the Old Testament in a way that's derogatory. 
kind of scoff at it. And I know it's weird and it's bizarre and it challenges us and, and, and it, you know, it can be tricky to understand, but we shouldn't be people who look at the Bible and say, there's three quarters of it that I just don't really agree with, that I don't really have a stomach for, that I don't really have the patience for. The Bible is an important book. Paul himself would say that the law is good. We need to be Christians who can say Moses was a special individual. He gave us the words of life. We read them, but we understand what they're for, and that's the the next thing that he does. He shows them that the temple itself and the law itself was all designed to lead us to Christ. The reason for the temple, the reason for the law is to help us appreciate our Savior. Um, The accusers recognize that and Back in chapter 6, we've heard him say that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the customs of Moses. And so right away, we, we already know the relationship that Stephen has to these different items. It's, it's one that kind of confronts them because it's, it's actually asking people to look through and beyond them to what they're really pointing to. The temple, the law, they're supposed to lead us to Christ. The professor, um, Joshua Jip, that I, I took the study of Acts with, he, he pointed out when Luke is telling this story, he's doing it in a very specific way. He's comparing Stephen to Jesus. There, there are all these different sim- similarities. That um, they're, they're both brought before a tribunal of people filled with false witnesses that are accusing them. They're both being charged with their relationship to the law and the temple as being inappropriate. There's incredible hostility that they both face, and they're both executed. Stephen is doing something here that really is reminding us that he's carrying forward the mission of Jesus, that that he's doing what Jesus himself did, that he's standing in the place of someone saying, here's what you need to know. That God is on the move and he has given us his word and his temple so that we might know the Son of God. So there was hostility toward him, but, but Stephen is showing us that this whole thing is about Christ. In Deuteronomy 18, when God is speaking to Moses, he tells Moses, there's one who's coming after you, who's like you. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put words in his mouth. And he will tell them everything I command them. There was a time when God was speaking to Moses and he's saying, as great as you are, there's one who's going to be better than you. As great as you are, as important as you are, there's one coming after you who's like you. But that person will teach you the ways of God in its fullness. And Stephen then connects the dots. Verse 37 of our chapter, he's saying, that's what God was talking about. He was sending Jesus Christ God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your own people. And so all of this is really about Christ. Well, then Stephen takes the opportunity to be a good preacher, and he puts a sharp point on everything that he's saying. He tells us that throughout this story, he says, if, if the temple is pointing to Christ, if the Bible is pointing to Christ, here's something that we need to know about ourselves we have a tendency to reject Christ. There's a pattern in Scripture, there's a pattern in people that God is trying to meet us where we're at, and what do we do? We reject Him. Let's look at it briefly. Um, The theme shows up over and over again throughout the story that Stephen is telling here throughout his response, but it says in verse 35, this Moses 
This is the same Moses that they rejected with their words. You want to talk about your appreciation for Moses? Look back at how our people rejected him. They rejected him with these words, who made you ruler and judge? You might think that we're so quick to say we love and appreciate Moses, but listen, we've got a long history of rejecting him. Verse 39, our ancestors refused to obey Moses. Instead, they rejected him, and in their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. Our ancestors that we keep pointing back to and saying, this is our heritage, we've got the Bible, we've got the law, we've got Moses, we love him. And Stephen's saying, look, look back at what really happened. People didn't love Moses. They resented him. And instead of appreciating the words of life that he was giving them, they looked at something else and they said, we would prefer that. We'd like to go back to Egypt. There's a history of rejection here. They quickly forget and they turn away. Look at verse 40. They told Aaron, make us gods who will go before us. Moses goes up on the mountaintop and they're left down at the base of the mountain and they say to Aaron, they say, make us gods. Fashion for us these gods. As for this fellow Moses who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what happened to him. And God turned away from them and gave them over to the worship of the sun, moon, and stars. This agrees with what is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring me sacrifices and offerings 40 years in the wilderness, people of Israel? Here's what God is saying. You have this propensity to turn away from truth and turn toward worship of something else. They quickly forget who Moses is and they turn away from him and they turn toward false worship. They even tabernacled with other gods. They've set up tents to these other gods. Look at verse 43. You've taken up the tabernacle of Molech and the star of your god, Raphon, the idols you made to worship. Therefore, I'll send you into exile beyond Babylon. So the people of God have this history of instead of appreciating the words of life, they reject them. They reject these words of life over and over and over again. And so Stephen makes a very important point here. He says, you do the same thing. You do the exact same thing. You claim a high allegiance to the things of God, but you're just like your ancestors. Look at verse 51 and following. You stiff-necked people. Your hearts and ears are still uncircumcised. You're just like your ancestors. You always resist the Holy Spirit. Was there ever a prophet your ancestors did not persecute? They even killed those who predicted the coming of the righteous one. And now you've betrayed and murdered him, talking of Jesus Christ. You have received the law that was given through the angels, but you have not obeyed it. What, why does this matter for us? Why are we talking about all these different things that, that feel so abstract, so foreign to us today. The, the reason why this is so important for us is because we have to recognize we're cut from the same cloth. He, all of humanity has this tendency to say, I love God, I appreciate God, I like his words, I follow him, when in reality, the truth of our heart is we want to reject him because he confronts us, because he challenges us, because he has something to say that's different than what I want to say. We're just like the Israelites. We can be a stiff-necked people with our hearts turning away from God, resisting the Holy Spirit. We, we can reject the, the truth of God and all of his ambassadors that he has sent to turn us toward him. We can be just like them. Well, you can imagine how that sermon went. They didn't like it. 
In fact, they turned on him and they stoned him to death. In their hostility and in their anger, they murdered him. But he, like Jesus, had a face like an angel and he prayed for them even while they were executing them. So that was his response. Let's look at five lessons that we can learn from this story. Five lessons quickly. Okay, here's the first one. God is the ruler of human history. God is the ruler of human history. When Stephen tells 53 verses of the history of the people of God, it's a reminder to all of us that God is sovereign, ruling over all of human history. This is an important point because you can look at different chapters in human history and you can say, man, that was, a, that was an awful season. That was terrible. Look, look what happened here, here, and here. We need to be a people who can look at the current season we find ourselves in and encourage ourselves by saying, God rules over all history, including this history. There are memes flying around the internet right now about 2020 and all the stuff that we're experiencing. People will say funny things like, has anyone tried turning it off and turning it back on again? You know, has anyone tried resetting 2020? Or one of my favorites, having done youth group for a long, long time, people will say, has anyone done this? Has anyone wrote down 2020 on a piece of paper and then taken it to a campfire and thrown it in there? Uh, you know, maybe, maybe that would just solve all, all of our problems. We're going through a very traumatic experience right now with a global pandemic and with economic crisis and with political upheaval and all these different things. And, and the truth that we have to be aware of is God is present in human history because he is the ruler of it. And he does not waste any season. There's no season in human history where God is not actively at work in a redemptive way. So I want to be on the side of history that is a part of the faithful remnant. And I want our church to participate in that activity of faith, that we would be people who say, God is at work here. Yes, it's broken. Yes, it's hard. Yes, it's challenging. But we're a people of faith. And God is here with us, and we can be agents of change and agents of good in this broken world. And so we're going to do that. God is the ruler of human history. Here's the second thing, second lesson that we can learn from Acts chapter 7. We need to learn to read our Bibles well. We need to learn how to read our Bibles in a, in a way that actually helps us to know what God is up to. Um, obviously, I, I'm a big proponent of spiritual disciplines. I think I, I would love it if everyone were reading the Bible with some sort of rhythm, with some sort of pattern, and just made it a part of their life, a, a discipline, if you will. But I also think we have to learn to read the Bible really in the way that it's told. And I think that's a, a unique skill, but I think it's something that we need to get better at. What Stephen does here is he takes the Bible and he retells it, highlighting different themes. He shows how God was at work with this unfolding plan. And it develops along the way, and, and, and the telling of it in that way actually makes you appreciate it even more. So it's kind of like the difference between reading a cookbook versus reading a novel. When you go to a cookbook, you're looking for a specific thing. You're like, okay, I want to make a dessert, so I'm going to go to the dessert section, and then I'm going to thumb through, and I'm going to find something that will help me perform this activity that I want to do. A lot of people deal with the Bible in that way. We look at it like it's a cookbook. Okay, I'm dealing with uh, temptation. So I'm going to go to the Bible and I'm going to find the different places that speak about temptation. And that's good. That's helpful. And God will meet you there and speak to you. And, 
give you incredible resources to deal with what you're facing, but I also want us to be the kind of people who read the Bible like a novel, who begin to see that God told a story and he told it in a specific way. And by interacting with that story, it actually changes you. If you've read a a really, really good book, you know that the reading of that book can change your life. And it's the experience of reading the unfolding story and how those different things fit together. Now, I understand that most people after they graduate high school never touch a book again. There's statistics that prove that much. But maybe you can remember back to an assignment that you had that you begrudgingly did and it changed your life. That's what the Bible has the ability to do. It has the ability, if you'll read it like that, like an unfolding story, you begin to pick up these different themes and things that are going on and it actually changes you on the spot. Um, I've told you before there are a bunch of kids' Bibles that do this really well. My favorite is The Biggest Story by Kevin DeYoung where it goes from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and it shows you that it's all one piece, that it's all this development of God's promised plan in his son Jesus. One of my more recent favorite ones right now is a children's Bible called The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. The Garden, the Curtain, and the Cross. And it does this. It tells the story of the Bible beginning to end, but it highlights some of these different themes, even themes that Stephen picks up here in Acts chapter 7. In the beginning, God created a garden, and we lived with God, and it was good to live with God. But we sinned. We turned away from God. There's a brokenness in us, and there's a brokenness then in the world. And it, we, we have to leave the garden. Humanity leaves the garden, and God posts angels there, warrior angels, kind of as a sign, the author says, a keep-out sign. It's good to live with God in the garden, but because of your sin, you can't come back in. And then he goes on and he develops that theme. He says, God made a tent, a tabernacle. He made, he made a, a temple, a beautiful building, and it's a place where the name of God and the glory of God is. And inside the temple, there's a holy of holies. It's the place, the most special place on all of the, all of the earth and all of the planet. But on that curtain that's in there, on the outside of the holy of holies, are the warrior angels, pictures of the warrior angels. It's a keep out sign. It's good to live with God, but because of your sin, you can't come in. And he's developing this theme, and he's showing us that the whole Bible is this reality that because of our sin, we've been separated from God. And then it goes on to say, but Jesus came, and he lived the perfect life, and he did not sin, and he laid down that life at Calvary on the cross. And he did that in such a way that he now makes a way for all of his friends having the ability to come in. Because of our sin, we can't come in, but Jesus made a way for all his friends to come in. That's the good news of the gospel. And then the end of the Bible is that culmination of what it looks like to live together with God for forever. That's the unfolding story. We need to learn to read our Bibles like that, where we see that God is doing something in history. And when we begin to read it in that way, it changes us on the spot. We need to learn to read our Bibles well. Thirdly, we can learn not to fall in love with the form. Here's something that we tend to do. We fall in love with the things that lead us to God. But we usually begin to idolize them. And that's a problem. The Bible is a great thing. It's the words of life. But when you begin to idolize the Bible, you can lose track of what the Bible is for. It's for leading people to Christ. You can fall in love with a physical space like the temple, 
But if you forget what the purpose of the temple is for, it's to lead you to the reality of Jesus Christ. You're missing the point. Don't fall in love with the form. Right now, we're, you know, we're going through this traumatic season and we're making all these different adjustments and we, we might look back longingly on the glory days. Man, wasn't it wonderful when we could all meet in a high school auditorium and sing all the songs we love without masks on and do all these different things and we, we love the form, but, but what if we're not able to go back to that anytime soon? Let's be careful that we don't fall in love with the form so that we think that, you know, What's going to be the best case scenario is when we're able to do everything the same exact way we used to do it all along. Maybe that's not what God wants for us. Maybe he doesn't want us to be so wed to a particular form. Maybe this is a season for the church to make some very significant adjustments of how we're going to consider ourselves and how we're going to meet and what that's going to look like. And if we think that God can only work if we get together in the same location and do the order of service the exact way that we used to do it, we're falling in love with the form. Let's be careful about that because that's what people have done all along. Here's a fourth lesson that we learn. This one's a little bit surprising, but people have the ability to creatively reject God while calling it religion. And this is one of the hardest things to untangle because there are things that we will do because of our faith even and they're not what God wants us to do. And we have such a hard time then because we're thinking, this is God's will. This is what God wants. What, what do you think the accusers were thinking when they were accusing Stephen and, and then even when they were executing him? They were thinking they were doing a service for God. Their religion compelled them. He's a troublemaker. He doesn't appreciate religion like we do. So we're going to do something about it. God's going to appreciate us very much. That's how serious we are. Listen, friends, we can do the same exact thing. We can creatively reject God while calling it religion. So pay attention to your heart right now. Pay attention to the way that you deal with other image bearers. Pay attention with the way that you justify your behaviors because right now I see a lot of hostility and I see a lot of people trying to baptize that hostility and say, this is what God wants. Are you sure? Are you sure? We need to be careful there. Here's the fifth lesson, the final thing that we'll talk about today. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. I know there were a lot of different details and things. We, we felt like we were down in the weeds a little bit today. But the truth is, everything is all about Jesus. The Bible is about him. The temple is about him. Our Christianity is about him. We need to be a people who focus on him, him what he did for us. And we need to be people who orient our entire lives and our entire experience around Jesus Christ. So let's pray. Lord, we pray right now that you would continue to use your word to shape your people. We pray, God, that we could be bold like Stephen. That we could follow you even if it's incredibly challenging and difficult and even if it brings us into situations where we're being falsely accused and and even if it means loss loss of reputation loss of comfort maybe even loss of life lord we want to be the faithful remnant so help us to stick very very closely to jesus christ our lord and our savior help us to navigate these difficult days in a way that's pleasing to you lord help us to be 
aware. Help us to be self-aware of our own hearts, the, the tendency that we have to justify ourselves and to misbehave and to consider it all religion. Lord, give us self-awareness. Uh, give us discernment. Help us, Lord. As a church, we want to capitalize on this moment. We, we, we want to be people who are faithful to you, following you, loving you, serving you, being a blessing to the surrounding communities, Lord. Help us to do that, please, we pray in your name. Amen.